Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is a little bit different. We recorded our news segment live in front of an audience at the Acer CyberCon in Canberra and you're going to hear that in just a moment. This week's show is brought to you by Stairwell and Mike Wyasek, Stairwell's founder, will be along in this week's sponsor interview to talk about how there are more and more products in InfoSec these days that actually give their customers really useful visibility uh, in their environments. There's things like NDR, stuff like Asset Discovery, a la Run Zero, and of course, stuff like their platform. And uh, that interview is coming up later. But first up, here is this week's news segment recorded in front of a live audience in Canberra. Enjoy. So we got a bunch of cool stuff to talk through uh, this week. In the lead up to this, uh, to this session, we were thinking, geez, you know, what if we're going to do this live show? And nothing interesting has happened. But thankfully, something interesting has happened. And it's something that hasn't been getting a great deal of attention, uh, which is somewhat surprising. So does everyone here know who Evgeny Prigozhin is? Evgeny Prigozhin. Wagner Group, that guy, sounding more familiar? So he is the, the owner and operator of the uh, Wagner private military contractor, which is engaged in all sorts of activities in uh, Ukraine. He also runs the IRA troll farm, catering businesses, uh, and all sorts of stuff. And what happened to him? That lovely, delightful old man, uh, Adam, what happened to him over the last week? Well, he, he had a little bit of a bad day. Uh, some people aligned to Russian opposition broke into the computers at uh, all of his various enterprises and uh, somewhat helped themselves to essentially everything uh, and then gave it to some Russian, you know, kind of people who wanted to investigate such things, of which there are many, uh, yeah. and it's all gone very badly. It has gone very badly for that sweet, sweet, lovely old man who looks like he's made out of leftover elbow skin. Uh, but yes, it, it, it looks like this intrusion actually started in August 2022, and uh, you know it's just been unveiled now. Uh, a friend of the show, Dmitry Alperovich, a lot of you would know him as the, as the uh, co-founder of CrowdStrike. These days, he's a geopolitical commentator and uh, the chair of the Silverado Policy Accelerator. He's been paying really close attention to this. Uh, so I asked him to provide us with some audio talking about this, and, and so he could sort of explain the ins and outs of this intrusion, what it means, and also look at some of the, the details here uh, of what's happened, which, as you're going to discover, are, are quite funny. It's okay to laugh at this guy's misfortune, basically, but here's Dmitry Alperovich. Hey, Patrick, Adam, and CyberCon. So there was this very interesting story that came out this weekend from Dossier Center. This is a group that was started by Mikhail Khodorkovsky, a Russian oil oligarch that Putin had jailed early on in his tenure as president, and Horokovsky now funds Russian opposition causes in exile. So this group received what it says are over 1 million documents acquired by unknown hackers who had accessed the networks of companies run by Evgeny Prigozhin. Prigozhin is, of course, the leader of the Wagner paramilitary group, but also Internet Research Agency, Troll Farm, and numerous other entrepreneurial endeavors, everything from a fledgling social networking site to food provisioning business for the Russian military. The files are very interesting, not only because they provide a unique window into Prigozhin's business operations and, frankly, his elaborate efforts at tax evasion, like literally keeping two copies of accounting books in his companies, one set for the tax authorities and one representing the actual business, but also because it gives a lot of insights into his perhaps justified paranoia and focus on OPSEC, but also some pretty huge IT security shortcomings. Prigozhin seems obsessed with internal security and secure communications. 
The documents show that he polygraphs all new hires on 13 questions, including whether they have a negative view on the war in Ukraine and whether they intend to reveal confidential information about the company. Ironically, anyone applying for a job at his companies who is found to have a background in the FSB intelligence service is automatically blacklisted, even though the same does not appear to apply for GRU or SVR former operatives. Prigozhin also apparently gave up using his beloved iPad due to concerns about being spied upon and is now using a Scion PDA from the 1990s as a personal organizer, relying on a 25-year-old electronics device for OPSEC. Given the lack of internet connectivity on that device, you'd think he'd be pretty safe using it. Unfortunately for him, the files show that the device is being regularly backed up on the normal corporate network. All of his contacts and meeting schedules residing on a network easily accessible from the internet. And more on that in a second. He also at least on occasion uses GPG for encrypted email and a custom Android OS running on various Samsung Galaxy phones used by his employees with an open VPN network uh, that provides a private closed loop messaging uh, system. I do wonder how often they keep that custom Android OS updated with patches from Google, if ever. But yeah, unfortunately for Prigozhin, for all of these elaborate OPSEC efforts, they're all pretty much for naught because they're all running on absolutely atrocious foundation in terms of their basic network security. They seem to rely on free Avast AV, which nothing against Avast, but it's probably insufficient as far as your security controls go. But on top of that, the sysadmins seem to regularly disable it too. They're also running a bunch of XP systems and Windows 2008 R2 servers, both of which no longer receive security updates. Many of the employees in his companies also appear to reuse passwords, keep them in unencrypted text files, and regularly mail them to each other. I particularly liked one password, Putin1488. 1488 seemed to be a number that is regularly added to other words to create passwords, and is of course a popular neo-Nazi slogan. So in general, nice try Evgeny, but maybe invest more in the basics going forward as opposed to the sexy stuff like custom phones and PDAs from the 1990s. And that was Dmitry Alperovich. Now, Adam, I know it's a phrase that's not in style anymore, but there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> there certainly is. Uh, I mean, the idea that to run your paramilitary company that you should use Windows XP and custom phones and like it, none of this sounds great, but there's just so many ways that this has gone badly for them. And I mean, I'm here for it. Yeah, no, totally. Um, but I guess the, the interesting conversation that comes out of this, right, and it's one that you and I had over the last couple of days, is, okay, they've done a bunch of dumb stuff, they've got owned by a bunch of activists, and, and there's really just sort of interesting data that's come out of this, and I think one of them is that Prigozhin has all of these companies, but there's like a core admin team, so it seems like the IT is sort of shared between his various interests. But I guess, I guess one of the interesting things that's come out of this is, okay, say you're Evgeny Prigozhin, and you're an enemy of the collective West, and the United States, what are you supposed to do? Like, obviously, you're not supposed to spin up, uh, you know, your own fork of Android, which is just going to get you owned six ways from Sunday, like, immediately. And you're not supposed to self-sign certs for an open VP. You know, like, the whole thing is just, is just kind of nuts. But then you try to think, well, what would you do if you were them? Well, that, that's it, right? How, how on earth are you supposed to build infrastructure 
if you're an enemy of the West, right? I mean, they could, I guess, I mean, Android phones, like you can make your own Android, now you've got to maintain it. That's kind of difficult. Uh, you can use a device with no internet, like the Scion, but then you've still got the same problems of how do I back it up? How do I use it? How do I integrate? How do I get my calendar appointments onto it? Like, that's hard. I mean, if you're not going to connect it to a computer, you may as well just be using a paper diary. Well, right? exactly, that, right? Yeah. And that would probably be better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although you never know, NSA might have some sort of exploit for, you know, well, I'm sure they're like notebooks, you know, you bo know. Boffins at the NSA are probably sitting there right now thinking, oh man, we've got some sweet Epoch 32 bugs, which is probably not even 32 bit from back then, like some sweet bugs for the Scion, you know, OS. Plus, I bet you can tempest the hell out of that thing. <laughs> you just wonder, though, how something like this happens where you've got, you know, these attempts at doing things securely in, in one place that kind of look, and we were talking about this last night, they kind of look performative, right? Like yes. you ask someone who kind of feels like maybe they know what they're doing to build you a secure system and they, they spin up this weird open VPN on custom Android thing and show it to their boss and say it's good and the boss looks at it and goes, yeah, man, that's cool. Thank yeah, you. I mean, you this know? is the problem that security is so opaque, right? You just yeah. look at it and you can't tell whether it's good or not. And, you know, to a person who isn't an expert and to your earlier question, like, how on earth are you supposed to do this as an expert? Mm. Like, I mean, that Mexican cartel that ran up their own cell network, like, that was pretty cool, right? Yeah. At least they can rely on open standards crypto in the GSM stack and, and that kind of thing. But that also did not end well. So Yeah, and it's not going to work for Wagner, who operate globally, right? Like, yes, you can't, exactly. You can't just create a global cell network. No, I mean, and they're stuck using, you know, other people's satellite networks for comms and, you know, in, in Syria or wherever else. So, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a hard time being a you know, Western-hating paramilitary organization. Yeah, so imagine this. The year is 2025. Donald Trump is president again. Uh, he's declared war on Australia because he wants to steal the Great Barrier Reef and install it off the coast of Florida. Uh, they're staging a land invasion to come and take Uluru uh, because they want to put it in the middle of the Grand Canyon, right? So all of a sudden, we are enemies of the United States. You and me, Adam, we form a private military contracting company because we want to fight back against those damn Yankees. Yes. Uh, so what, what do we do? Because hmm, okay. this is really hard, right? The more you think about this, okay, say we go buy a bunch of Chinese cell phones, right? You think the collective West, you know, they, they don't have the maturity. They don't have the security yet to be secure against, for example, Western intelligence, right? You can't use the Western devices because they are mature, but you know that there's significant investment into getting access into them. So what on earth are you supposed to do? Well, this, this is a really great question, uh, and we've been spitballing this over a couple of days. Um, and I mean, the answer is, once again, as the Grak and Tom Uran are very familiar, you invoke Halvar. And Halvar says, taking a complicated device and making it pretend to be a simple device is how you get ants. I'm paraphrasing Halvar at this point. Um, and so at that point, I'm thinking, well, like the best I'm going to do is like for battlefield comms, like short range radio, very simple stack over the top, some modern best practice crypto. So take super simple, apply modern thinking for how you do, say, key management. Um, and so re-implement key management is well, your simple I mean, solution the simple to not solution getting like right, okay. Step one, build a PKI. And now you've got 47 <laughs> other yeah, problems. Right, okay, yeah. um, but yeah, I'm building a device that can do what we expect of modern smartphone, modern communications in a way that is simple enough to inspect Right. This is a problem that intelligence agencies that have to secure devices for you know, people who work in the government have been struggling with for years. So Although I do feel like if you are on the west side of this, you, can, you at least have a shot of doing this well because you have access to some pretty good technology and you don't have to worry about your vendors being out to get you. And by and large, yes. Right. If you end up in a position where you're an enemy of Google or you're an enemy of Microsoft or you're an enemy of the west... 
then it's very hard, right? I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? Get North Korea? Does North Korea have a domestic Android for? It's like yeah, red, I mean, red Star Android or something. Maybe, yeah. And where you just squeeze it and shells go flying yeah. out. <laughs> and that, and that's right? every intelligence agency on the planet is already squeezing that for shells. Yeah. And there's no reason to disclose it because the equities calculation pretty simple for once. And uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, a lot of people uh, forget that. That with these operating systems that are that are developed by you know adversary nations, when it comes to the Western Signals intelligence agencies, they don't need to think about, geez, do we disclose this one to the vendor? Uh, they just don't even have to yes, have that conversation. Exactly right. So. I mean, and that's one of the few benefits of running an operating system that's used by your adversary is that they are stuck using the same SSL implementation as you, and so if they find a bug in the cert checking then NSA probably going to have to equities it out. So, yeah, yeah sucks yep. to be them. <laughs> now, look, staying on this topic, uh, we've got a news report here from Commissant in, in Russia. Ah, you've got the clicker. There mm. we go. Uh, apparently, uh, if you work in Vladimir Putin's office, um, you can't use an iPhone anymore. And this sort of connects back to this whole theme, right? And, and the story says, you know, that, that staffers have been instructed, hey, give your iPhone to the kids uh, because you, you can't use one anymore because they don't trust them. But oddly enough, as part of the advice is, you know, go get yourself an Android device. Yeah, and how's that going to go for you, given the complexity of securing Android devices? Once well, again, but I mean, supply I'm, I, chain I presume, back into a U, the I, US. I presume they're just, yeah, they're just talking about normal standard Android devices, and I'm just wondering how that's better for them. Yeah, well, the answer is probably it's not. It's probably yeah. better for uh, NSA. Yeah, but again, the theme is... What are you supposed to do yes. about this? What do we right? do with our private military contractor? Like, I, I don't know. Like, no. I'm thinking maybe some ESP32s from AliExpress. We write our own operating system, runs on top of it. Keep it nice and simple. This is sounding simple, right? Mm. Simple. Uh, <laughs> now, look. You won't be able to use Twitter on it, so. No, no. Thank heavens, you mm -hmm. know. Think of the productivity gains. Uh, now, look. Let's look at this next story, right? Because we we're just talking about Android. And Android's had a rough week. It certainly has. It's yes. had a real rough week. And let's look at these baseband bugs affecting... Now, it's a Samsung chipset, isn't it? Yeah, so uh, Google Project Zero looked into uh, the Samsung Exynos modems. So those are the cellular modems that Samsung phones and a bunch of other you know, non-Apple devices use, uh, including Google Pixel phones in some cases. Uh, and they... Yeah, deployed their Project Zero, you know, fuzzing and analysis and whatever else, found a bunch of bugs, um, and the worst of these are you can send a message to the phone via the internet, which is parsed by the baseband CPU, and then leads to code exec, which, that's not great. No, it's not. But I, I guess the question is, how easy is it to go? Because there's been some baseband bugs, yes. right, where you can get execution in the baseband, but that doesn't really get you that much. You know, maybe if you want to instruct their phone to send a bunch of SMS messages to a premium number or something, and yeah, you get to make a few hundred bucks. But, you know, getting from the baseband actually up into the OS, uh, it's not universally guaranteed. Is there any sort of idea here about... Uh, that that path from baseband up into the OS? I mean, that path has certainly been pretty well explored by a bunch of people, and as the modems have become much more complicated, as the binding between the operating system and features that the modem provides, so uh, one of the bits of advice for Google here was, uh, for, from Google was, to turn off voice over LTE. Yeah, uh, as a, as and, a, and voice over Wi-Fi as well. And voice over Wi-Fi, which of course exposes a bunch of you know stuff that would have just been cell protocol gubbins to more internet-y gubbins, 
and that binding together uh, is where we've seen. Okay, uh, so that arms. explains that explains the mitigation, yes. right? Because I did want, I did wonder about that. Uh, but yes, it does. In fact, these bugs do in fact apply to Pixel Six and Seven. Yes, and this I'm... is Pixel Seven, I believe, is the current version of the Pixel devices, and. That's bad. That's real bad, yes. Yeah. And, and apparently, you know, they, they've issued this mitigation advice, which is to turn off voice over LTE. And on quite a few devices that have these chipsets, that you, you, you can't. The option's greyed out. Yeah, it's a tough time to be an Android owner and a great time to be an iPhone. Oh, wait, unless you are one of Putin's inner circle, in which yeah. case, time to go buy new Android phones and uh, get shelled a different way. Yeah, a cheaper so, way, hopefully. So I guess, you know, we've got this overriding theme this week of, like, how on earth can you trust uh, your tech, right? Oh, now, now, another one. This, is, this one's kind of snowballing though, right? So this one started off as just an Android sort of curiosity, right? Um, a little bit ha-ha. So it turns out that the screen cropping utility in Android was just basically making some changes to PNG metadata uh, to say, was, it, was that right? Basically saying, well, the, the image is now this size, but not actually altering the guts of the file, right? So if you had one of these, you could just like tweak the metadata and you'd wind up with the unscreen capped file. Yeah, so the, the guts was that the tool that you took a screenshot with and then subsequently cropped before you pasted it in Discord or whatever, uh, opened the file to write the cropped image in, but did not uh, tell it to truncate the rest of the file. So the file remains the same length as it was originally. The truncated one, of course, the, the cropped one is now of course smaller that overwrites the beginning of the file but the rest of the old image is still there so you can extract some percentage of the original image which if you're pasting screenshots and you're cutting out juicy things like your name and the people you're communicating with and then yeah people can recover it so not great as well, well yeah and, and even though they've patched this it means for seven years people have been sending around these you know these cropped screen grabs and they are uncroppable they are, yes. That's and why they're calling it the, the, the Acropolis. Acropolis. <laughs> yes. Um, and yeah, there's some online websites that you can... Um, online websites, yes. Websites online are often, websites, are often my online. God. Not um, like Prigozhin's PDA. No, like, no, hang exactly. Off there's yeah, yeah, offline yeah. websites. Uh, and yeah, there's a website where you can go and stick images in, uh, and it, like JavaScript client sides, so you know, upload your image in case you want to leak your stolen screenshot. Um, and yeah, recover the data. And then this morning on Twitter... Well, hang on, hang on. Before we get there, we've got to point out that there's a saving grace here, which is that most social media sites and most, you know, app platforms, when you throw an image at them, they generally parse it and reinterpret it, and you will not be able to recover, uh, you know, a full a full screenshot, you know, that was posted to Twitter or something like that, right? Because they're so stingy that they make sure that they are not uploading one byte more than is necessary to their CDN. Same goes for Facebook, etc. But the one big site where this has turned out to be an issue is Discord, yes. which is the yeah. one you mentioned earlier. Uh, but yes, this is not, as it turns out, and this is sort of just happened this morning or overnight, uh, this doesn't just apply to Android, as it turns out. Yeah, someone on Twitter uh, posted some info this morning saying that the Windows 10 snipping tool does the same thing. Yes. Yes. Which is not... New. No. New. Not no, great. Not, 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 not very good. Now, we're going to change gear, get away from mobile, and we're going to talk about what dark reading here in this headline is calling, uh, you know, 2023's it bug. You know, the, the hottest bug of summer, I guess. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, CVE 2023-23397. Now, we spoke about this, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, I think so, yes. I think it was two weeks ago. So, you know, 
Patch Tuesday isn't normally something that we really dive into too much on the show, but there are a couple of absolute uh, crackers, really. Mm. Uh, in the last one, there was that ICMP uh, remote <laughs> code exec, which turns out like it's actually probably not that big a deal, but it's you know the sort of thing that but when we you like see it. That, like us, well, us Vuln kids, we love that kind of thing. Like kernel IP remote. Mm. Yeah, I mean, anytime you see a headline on a, on, a, on an advisory which says you know remote code execution via ICMP. <laughs> CVSS 9.8. I mean, that, you know, that's, that's, that'll do more for you than a cup of coffee when you see that in the morning. Uh, but this other one, so I was, I was talking about that, and you know, someone texted me and they said, hey, you know, this, other, this other bug, this Outlook bug. Now, I'm sure a lot of you in this room have been sort of dealing with trying to stamp this one out of your orgs uh, over the last couple of weeks. But why don't we just start off by talking about the bug itself, because we got some more details on how it actually works, and it's, it's quite funny. But essentially, essentially what it means is you can send someone a calendar invite and, you, and, and trigger basically uh, outbound authentication attempts you know, with a full NTLM hash, right? So you can capture this hash, you can crack it, you can relay it, you can do all sorts of stuff. Uh, but why don't you talk through the mechanics of how this actually works? Because it's, it's, it's just so Microsoft. It, it certainly is. And I mean, this may be the it bug of 2023, but it was also the it bug of 2003, maybe? Yeah. So essentially the guts of this is you can, in the calendar invite, set the path to the noise it's going to make. So you, know, you could play a little wave to say, bing, it's your appointment time. Uh, and apparently you can specify that in the invite, because why not? Uh, and then you could put a UNC path, you know, backslash backslash hacker.com, and people's outlook will then go out, authenticate, uh, like it was an SMB share. At that point, you've got NetNTLM that you can either relay or, or crack and, and onwards use, which is all very funny. But, you know, we've been doing that since the 2000s. I mean, in the old days, you could just email someone like an image source equals yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And yeah. we've been dealing with solving that problem for a long time as well. And those defences, which is like block outbound 445 TCP from your network. And I mean, before we, even get to the, <laughs> before we even get to the mitigations here, I mean, the, 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 the crazy part is Microsoft's Outlook calendar function allows someone who is inviting another person to a meeting to specify a path to the sound that the calendar notification and, should make. And how are people not being rickrolled, right? I yeah, mean, I mean, but, but, but it's just like, at what point in Redmond did someone say, this is an essential feature? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we, we, need to, we need to do this so that, you know, when I invite Bob to a meeting, you know, he's going to hear his favourite song. Or like it's just it's just a, a, a very very. It's Microsoft probably very thing. important to have like corporate branded meeting noises. You know, the marketing team worked very hard mm. on, mm. on branding those alert noises for specifically for the organisation. So yes, yes, branded branded alert noises, of course. But yes, now of course, right? This shouldn't be a problem. It this shouldn't, shouldn't be, be a problem, problem because it is twenty twenty three AD, and you know you should be doing egress filtering on the ports where this authentication attempt is, is, is going to be, you know, like it shouldn't be a problem. No attacker should be able to receive this NTLM hash that has been triggered by the path to the noise in the invite. But right? that should be the case. And, and, also, yet, and, yet, and yet, we are seeing reports that Russian intelligence services have been using this bug. Yes. So why is it working? Well, I mean, I guess the, the other half of this is like, it ought to be fine to authenticate to a random thing that you didn't control on the internet. It should be fine to attempt to auth the hacker.com because you're using an auth mechanism that wasn't designed for Windows NT 351. Mm. 
But but this is the world <laughs> that we live in. Yeah. We live with the legacy of Windows NT and OS two and NTLM auth and Net NTLM. Um, but that story, like you mentioned, Russian intelligence using it. Like this is interesting because uh, we had seen reports that this was being used initially in Ukraine and then a few other places. The bug was originally, I think, uh, discovered by the Ukrainian CERT. Uh, who are investigating, you know, incidents in Ukraine. Um, and I know when the war in Ukraine kicked off that we were all very worried about the fallout, you know, the cyber fallout of Allah, not Petya, uh, you know, of Russian operations uh, in Ukraine. And actually here we have an example of that, like a bug that was first used, as far as we can tell, maybe back to the middle of last year by Russian intelligence, now being deployed against a whole bunch of other people. And once we've got the the idea of how dumb this bug is, yeah, it's everybody not exactly, is going to be using this one. Yeah, it's not exactly hard to exploit. One thing that's been driving me absolutely spare, spare, you don't hear that very often, do you? It's been driving me spare, is, uh, you know, the description of this is a privilege escalation bug, <laughs> which is like, yeah, sure, if you're not authenticated and then you run the exploit and you are authenticated, that's not, privilege escalation. That's not, not normally what we mean by privilege that's escalation. That's not normally no, what we but mean. Actually, the Microsoft advisory describes it that way. So I don't, I don't know what's going on, but uh, I guess it's embarrassing to talk about NTLM relay, relay attacks, attacks in, in the 2023. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, there you go. That's the wrap on that one. But it's um, you know, as we spoke about it a couple of weeks, because you know, the, the feeling was that this one was going to get used, and by the sounds of things, yeah, it is. And like, it's just one of those things, it, it's rare that you see a bug drop that's so simple to exploit. Yes. And it just means for a lot of the people in this room who've got, um, you know, large organizations and they've got patch windows and they can't just immediately roll out Patch Tuesday patches and yet here's one where you kind of need to, or at least make sure you've got decent mitigations in place. Like egress filtering, which is hard though in an age from work from home and BYOD and all of that. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, it's pretty grim. And when we were talking before the show uh, yesterday with Shanna, she said that the mitigation that they're pushing out yes. uh, means you can still do it locally. Yeah, yeah. So well. their, their patch solution is to strip dots from the path. The path so which, you can't specify a domain like, or so an IP. If, if your search zone happens to be a little too broad, then bad times still getting shelled yeah. after the patch. So, yeah. yeah, orcs. But it leads to the, the actual control here is multi-factor auth. There should be nothing you can NTLM relay to on the outside of your network, and ideally not on the inside either. But yes. once again, we live in the real world. Unfortunately. Sadly. Unfortunately, Sadly, yes. yes. Right, so uh, look, staying with Microsoft stuff at the moment, uh, a ransomware crew is apparently, you know, they've got a zero-day bypass of a Microsoft uh, security feature called Smart Screen. Now, this is a feature that, uh, what, it applies to Edge? Is that right? Yeah, so if your browser is processing file, it hands them off the smart screen to do filtering on and then decide whether it should write in the disk, mark of the web, blah, 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 or say no. Yeah. And there was a bug a little while ago, a couple of months ago, uh, where you could feed smart screen a file that had a bad signature on it and it would come back with an error and coming, coming back from smart screen with an error was the same as it's fine according to Edge, so yeah. not great. So this is another variant of that where they found another file type uh, that you could bungle the signature on and therefore it would pass validation instead of fail. I mean, this isn't even the sort of thing that we would normally talk about. The reason we're talking about it is because it was being used in the wild by a ransomware crew and it's proof that they are getting, you know, they've got some research chops these days and they're going to find, they're going to do research that helps them get done what they need done. Well, exactly. And it's also proof of the risky biz maxim that it's not dumb if it works. Yeah. And kernel ICMP remote, super cool, doesn't work, <laughs> dumb. This, dumb, but not dumb because it works. So, that mm, hurts me in my vulnerability researcher heart. Now, Adam, we've got to move on. Pom Pom Purin. 
the admin of Breach Forum has been, apparently, been arrested. Now, not located in Russia, not located in North Korea, been arrested in New York, and is like a recently graduated high schooler. Now, Breach Forums, <laughs> of course, is the one where, you know, I don't know if we've got anyone from Optus in the, uh, in the audience, but this is where the uh, Optus data wound up being traded. Uh, more recently, uh, the personal, uh, personally identifiable information of a bunch of uh, US uh, senators and Congress people and whatnot uh, also getting traded on there. And uh, yeah, the FBI just knocked on his mum's door or whatever and, and picked him up the other day. Interesting thing about this story interesting thing about it is the FBI have been at pains to say that yes, when we knocked on the door and we spoke to him, he admitted to me that he was this person and ran this site, which made me wonder how much evidence they actually had on him. <laughs> I think they might have just knocked on his mum's door and said, are you running breach forums? And he said yes. And they said, okay, turn around, put your hands behind your back. Yep, well, that's, that's how it goes down. It's all part of the natural life cycle mm. of, uh, of a hacker forum. But, but it is, it's crazy, isn't it, that we've got you know, people running these major crime forums located in extradition countries. I just can't see that that's going to last. You know, I, I imagine a lot of this stuff is just going to have to collapse back into countries that will not extradite people to, to the West, right? So in, in particular, Russia. Yeah, I mean, yes, I think so. But then you, that also assumes that people who run crime forums uh, do sensible risk assessment, which when you're like 17 and yeah. hacking out of your mum's basement, maybe, maybe not so good at risk management. Yeah, and of course, you know, breach forums hasn't been around that long. It no. is a continuation of the previous sort of big data breach forums, which were RAID, right? RAID yeah, forums. Yeah. So, I, you know, where are they going to go? I mean, this is what we used to see with darknet sites going down. You know, the users would flock somewhere else. And usually the FBI had already taken over the most likely place that they were going to flock to before they flocked to it. So, you know, it's, it, it can be quite funny watching them all, you know, scatter and scatter and scatter and scatter. Uh, but, you know, do you think this is a turning point for these, uh, you know, breach data sale marketplaces or do you think this is just, I don't know, just chalk it up as a, as a, as a momentary win? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just work a day, right? I mean, these forums are always going to crop up and they're going to get taken down. They're getting taken down faster and obviously the, the feds have gotten pretty good at, you know, getting in, infiltrating, building a map of the relationships before they burn it. And yep. then, as you say, having a place for everybody to go. Although in the case of breached, uh, they decided not to go anywhere. They decided to just stay where they are, and somebody else took over breach forums. Well, did they? For a day or two. <laughs> For a day or two, right? So we love this. You know, there's a new admin says, we're, gonna, we're not going anywhere, you know, down with the man. And next minute, yeah. uh, next minute, yeah, that lasted, I think, less than 24 hours, yeah. basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's an admin, ostensibly, who said, oh, we've made the, you know, decision with a heavy heart to pull the site down, but everyone's like, that could very well just be the FBI talking, like, we have no <laughs> idea. So it's, uh, yeah. And who do they trust, Adam? Exactly. What tech can they trust? Okay, and uh, look, just in another law enforcement uh, bit of news, uh, a couple of guys. Oh, oh, one thing I should mention too about breach forums, kind of personal for the FBI, uh, because of course people involved with that site uh, managed to infiltrate InfraGuard, which is the FBI's like cybercrime sharing thing. And the way that they did it was just they pretended to be the CEO of a company and faxed off the forms and whatever and got let in. So, but I mean, you know, it's hard. Running communities it is, is hard, it you is. know. Um, so, yeah, they, a little bit personal for them. Um, we also have some news that a, uh, a couple of guys have been uh, charged for uh, obtaining access to a DEA portal, um, which they could use to do, like, emergency requests of social media companies. Like, we, we covered this at the time, right, where essentially 
law enforcement do get to do emergency information requests of sites like Twitter, Facebook, whatever, like if someone's uh, threatening self-harm or whatever, um, you know, sometimes there are these, these expedited processes to, to uh, grab people's info. But these systems are quite open because there's a lot of law enforcement around the world. So some of them would like steal creds and pose as some cop from Bangladesh or something and try to, you know, coast in on that access. Two people have now been arrested and, and charged over these uh, over this stuff. Yeah, and they were using this to sell data on doxing forums and stuff. So pretty pretty scummy stuff. And I think Bangladesh was the example used, which was what they had done here. They'd obtained the creds. I'm assuming single factor. Good job, DEA. Uh, creds to this uh, portal and they would just you know make an info requests impersonating a Bangladeshi policeman yeah yeah so uh, good to see a couple of people being locked up for that one of them was on the lam lasted a couple of days they picked him up in Florida so um, yeah they're gonna have a bad time uh, what else has happened we've seen an, yet another one of these crypto mixes uh, taken down and this one was you know huge uh, absolutely huge uh, Mixer running on the, the, the dark web. The dark web. The dark web. And, uh, yeah, you know, with all these mixers, when you crack them open, you know, a bunch of North Korean thieves, you know, <laughs> fall out and, um, you know, various criminals and whatnot. And it really does look like uh, chasing mixers off the internet has become a priority for authorities. And, you know, with good reason, because you look at how much uh, crime is enabled through uh, digital currencies and, you know, it's only really worth stealing the money if you can launder it, right? Yes, so applying exactly. pressure to the places that can launder cash at volume is always going to give you a good efficiency when it comes to trying to combat crime, right? Because yes. you're just going to make it too hard for some people to bother with the crime in the first place. Yeah, and also and the point of a mixer is to mix it up with other transactions and you have to have a, like enough scale to mix for it to be effective. You can't mm. have a small like North Koreans only mixer because no. it kind of defeats the point. <laughs> uh, so like if we can, you know, if you can't reach a size threshold as an open public cryptocurrency mixer, then you've really negated the, the utility of mixing. Yes, yes. Well, Adam, at this point, we're going to bring out a guest. Uh, Shanna Daly is a principal consultant at COSIV. Uh, but before that, uh, before she shifted to consulting, Shanna was in the incident response trenches for about 12 years. And uh, she's here at CyberCon to do a talk, and she's sitting on a bunch of uh, panels. So we thought, why not bring her out here to chat to us as well? Everyone, please welcome Shanna Daly. So, Shanna, what we wanted to talk to you about today is, you know, you worked in incident response during a very, very interesting time, right? Like, your career in incident response had an actual arc to it, okay? And it's like you were telling us last night. You started off doing PCI DSS gigs, you know, credit card number breaches and things like that, and that was your bread and butter. And then gradually that started to change. So why, why don't you tell us what that was like, seeing the change from, you know, credit card thievery into this more, these more modern crime types, like, uh, like uh, ransomware, for example. Yeah, um, it's been pretty interesting. Even the PCI DSS work that we used to do, it was really interesting watching the evolution of the malware and the techniques as we were discovering what they were, you know, how they were stealing those credit card information. So originally in log files, so we'd come back and say, all right, we need to you know, make changes to the software so that we're not logging the full track data. So we do that. Cyber criminals would come in and go, all right, now we have to steal that from memory. 
So we got to see over those years the evolution of, you know, as we were stopping one part of their techniques, they would just jump to, you know, how else are we going to do this now? Yeah, they'd, so, they'd break in and turn the logging back on. Or, yeah, know, exactly. Like, just looking for other, other places to find the yeah. same data. So we were always, you know, that little step behind, but um, kind of fun as well to be uh, discovering this and then watching them having to change their tactics you know, even mid-investigation sometimes, which was um, just, yeah, super interesting. But then all of that changed as well with, you know, sort of ransomware going from hitting, you know, consumers or just people at home where it used to be, you know, like, send us one Bitcoin, but it was worth, you know, $30 or something. I mean, that's, that's how it started, right? It was like drive-by malware, you know, give us 500 bucks and we'll unlock your computer. And, you know, that was ransomware and that kind of dropped off. And then when it came back, wow. Yeah, started hitting enterprise, and that's when people started to pay attention, I think, to um, security a little bit more when you're, you're going to lose money. Yeah. Before, you know, um, credit card theft, these retailers, they were insured. Yes, I mean, you would have gone with dealing from, from dealing with people who were in a stressful situation to people who were in a traumatic situation, right? Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah. Um, like I say, I mean, the retailers were insured. The money generally was going to be covered by the bank. There wasn't a lot of lessons learnt for mm. those people. Uh, whereas with ransomware, you know, potentially there's financial loss, uh, reputation loss. Um, it's huge. It's big. And yeah. people have to start paying attention when, you know, your entire organisation could be offline. I mean, and it could be offline for weeks. Now, one of the things that was different about the sort of work that you did, right, is you dealt a lot with smaller businesses, right? And, and a lot of people who work in incident response, they are very much stuck at the, the enterprise side of it, whereas you've been dealing with, you know, organisations with as few as like, you know, five or ten staff up to like a hundred. That was sort of your, your area, right? And the reason we wanted to talk about this is we look at the news this week, Mandiant's put out a report talking about how the use of O'Day, basically. And there's some interesting stuff in there about how Chinese APT crews were using bugs in Fortinet. We saw CISA release uh, some information about a government server that was recently compromised via a vulnerability in Telerik, right? Um, we've seen a bunch of stuff compromised via bugs in Atlassian and whatever. So it seems like enterprise software and even more worryingly, like enterprise security software is often the ways... Uh, often the way that the, you know, a lot of these organisations are actually getting breached in the first place. And you had an interesting thought on that that you shared with me last night. Yeah, so a lot of the ransomware cases we worked in the last couple of years, we'd get on a phone call with you know, the, the potential client and start talking to them about what's going on and about you know, who the, the ransomware actor or the ransomware gang is. And one of the first questions we'd be asking is, what kind of firewall do you have in place? And you know, kind of without naming names, but naming names, you know, the, like FortiGate SSL, SonicWall, PulseSecure, you kind of immediately can start to understand what's going on now and, and, and what that initial access vector was. And you know, I mean, that's, that's the point, right? Like as an incident responder, you just say to them, what sort of firewall do you use? Oh, okay, well, that's where we're going to start our incident response. I mean, that is a pretty disturbing state of affairs, especially when you point out, particularly at the smaller end of the market, the reason people are buying these devices is because they're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. They're told you have to take security seriously, so they go out and they say, what is a small to medium enterprise uh, uh, you know, device that I can buy that's going to help me with this stuff? They buy it and that's what gets them owned. Yeah, and particularly some of these are zero days, so there's no patches available. So, you know, they're doing the right thing. It's a really difficult situation to be in when you tell them that the reason that they've been breached is actually their security appliance, their security software. Mm. Um, you know, how do you, how do you 
they're not doing anything wrong. They're actually doing what they can. And for these small businesses, I mean, we talk about you know security in depth. Most of them don't even have IT people. They'll use outsourced IT people who don't also have a lot of experience in security either. And for them, putting in a firewall is security. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, whether or not that's, we would sit here and say, well, that's not a reasonable expectation, but how are they supposed to know that, right? Yep. And, and, and I think this is the issue. So we were kicking this around last night and just saying, well, you know, what advice do you give today in 2023 if, if someone from a small to medium enterprise, and, and Shanna pointed out yesterday that, uh, you know, in Australia, we have very small businesses. What the United States considers a small to medium enterprise is what we consider to be, you know, a, a lower end enterprise, right? So what sort of advice can you give them? And I think all three of us kind of landed on, you know, just go as, pivot as hard into cloud as you possibly can so that if your environment gets wrecked, it just kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, that's generally been, you know, whether it's ransomware or, or nation state attackers, um, if we go in there and you're seeing on-site exchange, on-site SharePoint, RDP into these servers, you know, the first thing that we're going to do is move to the cloud, get your Office 365, SharePoint online, um, Outlook online, get this off, off on-prem because yeah. most of them don't have the skills uh, to actually be able to maintain on-prem infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is uh, the issue, I guess, is not everyone's just using generic productivity apps, right? So when you get into something like a medical clinic or, a, you know, I've got a friend who runs a dental clinic, right? And they're running quite specialist software. Although I will say that thankfully through these, you know, low interest rates and VC largesse, pretty much every single SaaS solution that you can think of has been funded and is now in the market. But Adam, you had a point on that, which is that, you know, you're exposing yourself to a different type of risk, which is if you're using one of these mid-sized SaaS providers, chances are their organisational security might not that be that great. And one day, uh, you know, that SaaS service where you've got all your data might just go... Well, of course, this is this is the problem with SaaS services in general is that we just have very poor visibility into them and what kind of methods and, and techniques they're using, how reliable they are, because everybody says we take security privacy very seriously <laughs> and has a padlock on their website and blah, blah, blah. And, I mean, the example that came to my mind when we were talking last but, night, of but course... But yet their, is, their internal network looks more like, you know, Prigozhin's... Yes, exactly, yeah, right, because yeah. there's not much money in these things. You're trying to build it early and then scaling it as you grow with user base. Uh, so, like, it's hard to do it well and like you look at Vastamo that Finnish the software company that made SaaS for Finnish therapist clinics that ended up getting rinsed because they had you know MySQL on the internet with no password mm. uh, and then tried to cover it up and etc etc eventually goes out of business which is the market doing what it should of course but sucks to be everybody who had followed that advice and this is the, the theme we come back to is that we the infosec industry tech industry in general are giving people advice which when, is really very useful right which is not useful because we suck right we as yeah. an industry suck and you know old firewalls suck new firewalls probably will suck too i mean active directory sucked 30 years ago and we're still discovering new and interesting and novel ways that it does suck uh, and you know the the, the move of, from of ransomware from individual consumers to enterprise, right? That's 100% on Active Directory, right? The fact that you can monetize those, that access well, you can monetize, so quickly. Yeah, you can monetize user to domain admin Is because parts, of security yeah. software, like directory software. So like we as an industry are telling people to do stuff and then that stuff is getting them wrecked. So yeah. Woo! Woo, go us. Yeah. I mean, this is great. We just came to cheer everyone up. <laughs> <laughs>
we got to end it there. I want you to give a big round of applause to CyberCX's Adam Boileau and Shanna Daly from Coastal. Thank you so much for being a great audience. See you next time. That was Adam Boileau, Shanna Daly and me there at the CyberCon conference in Canberra. And I'd like to say a big thank you to the conference organisers who were, you know, lived up to the name of being organisers because they were really well organised and uh, made this travelling show possible. Uh, really, thank you to, to everyone involved. Uh, it, was, it was a great experience. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Mike Wyasek, who is the founder of Stairwell. Stairwell is, you know, an interesting product because I can't think of anything else out there that's quite like it. Essentially, it lets you build your own virus total for your enterprise. You set up file forwarding agents on your machines and you wind up with a centralized corpus of executables, DLLs, scripts and the like. Uh, and you can search through that corpus and analyze it. And as you can imagine, this is extremely useful. Uh, and you can also do stuff like fuzzy searches. So a new Threat Intel report lands and you can throw a hash, uh, for example, into Stairwell and ask it uh, if that file has ever been present uh, in, your, in your environment. And that's useful, but where it starts getting even cooler is when you can ask it if it's ever seen similar files to that one in your environment. And it can actually tell you that. Anyway, Stairwell falls into this newer category of security tooling that I quite appreciate. Um, and that category is like stuff that can give you visibility into what's actually happening in your environment at a pretty foundational level. So here's Mike Wyasek talking about Stairwell. You know, if you're you're the CISO or you're, um, you know, you're leading the, the security team at some organization, you invariably get requests from people above you where your boss may be um, maybe seeing a, a, a news article about some new threat and come to you and say, hey, does this impact us? And then you're like, I got to get you an answer. And what you're really looking for is you want to go back to them and say, I can give you with confidence a clean bill of health that the thing that you just asked me about is not here, was not here. And if it shows up, we'd be alerted. Yeah, and there's a lot of powerful statements in that, and it's really hard. Well, I think to get I think there. before we got recording, uh, one of your colleagues mentioned the um, you know the example of when someone goes to the SOC and says, "Did this affect us?" and then they come back three weeks later and say, "Maybe." <laughs> <laughs> and that's I mean that's a that's a very common experience, right? Like that's something yeah. that happens. I mean, if you really want to get a concrete answer on that, think about the amount of work that's involved. Um, if it's still within the realm of say your EDR data retention. You might get a hit on an exact IOC match, but there's no fuzzy matching or variant type stuff applied with that. You're you're just hoping that you get an exact match. Um, you're hoping it's still within retention, and then if not, then you're really going uh, you're going out there. You're going to go crawl through you know virus total or something like that. Try and find variants yourself extract out all those IOCs, come back, search your logs, your data sources. And I mean, essentially at that. that point, you're doing incident response on every single computer in your environment. And that's right? not like, scalable. Yeah. No, that's of course scalable. it's not. No. But when no. you think about what we're trying to say is you can come over and imagine if you could do full-scale incident response on every single alert that comes into your SIM because it takes 
three seconds. But I mean, this is why I call you, you know, NDR for files, right? Because that's the core value proposition, I think, of NDR. NDR didn't come from network detection teams. It came from responders, right? Mm -hmm. Who were just like, what's the stuff that we need to record? What's the stuff that we need to write down so that it's available to us to very quickly pull up in, in, in the case of an incident? And, you know, it's great being able to pull up have I ever communicated with this IP? Bang. Okay, when and where, whatever. Okay, the information's just there. That's fantastic. I mean, this is essentially the same proposition, but for binaries. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know you Absolutely. don't you don't necessarily love it when I say it's like NDR for for binaries, but you see what you see why I say. It. I mean. I, I think I think with what you're looking at right now, that's absolutely the case, right? You're yeah. looking at a, a a binary as, you know, a collection of bytes that exhibits some behaviors and you start working on that. You know, as as we expand, um, capabilities just get better. So being able to search for variants based on file contents, uh, you can probably start seeing a path to how do you start looking for um, variants that are based on behavioral analysis, not just yeah. on the file content. So yeah, then I mean, how do you start uh, leveraging other data sources to do that. Yeah, that's not really an NDR proposition, right? Uh, for yep. now, unless you start saying, well, gee, here's this funny traffic pattern that's going through some sort of obfuscation process, like domain fronting or TLS 1.3, show me network traffic that looks like that going to different domains. That would be a similar proposition, right? So, yeah. I, I guess what I'm point what I'm pointing out is that you know, until stairwell popped up, there wasn't really anything quite like this. You know, the EDR stuff, more of a focus on real-time detection, whereas I see like stairwell is 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 less about that. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think you, you do get into this, you can get detections really fast, but if you want to try and compare it to like an EDR in terms of on the device, quarantine, isolation types like st stuff is type of stuff like that. That's not the realm in which we're trying to play. We actually think that there's a really nice um, symbiotic relationship between EDR and um, we started referring to Inception as a CIDR platform, continuous intelligence detection response, where the R in response for us is the incident response variety as opposed to the, uh, you know, the remediation response type but that's, effort that's there. that's kind of supporting what I'm saying, right? Which is if you get a hit from EDR, that gives you a starting point where you take that information and throw it into stairwell, much yes. like, like you might an IP, right? Um, mm -hmm. And throw it into your NDR platform. And I guess, you know, the reason I make that distinction and of course you can do detections, right? You can do rolling detections through something like stairwell, new threat intel feed comes in and you start getting hits, right? That platform will tell you that. You were talking before about EDR logs kind of having a, a window, right? It's gonna it's gonna find you stuff that's outside of that window. So yeah, in, in that sense, uh, detections. But yeah, the response the response capability here is is quite unique, I think is what I'm getting at. Absolutely. That, that was the, the, I always thought the some of the most fun interesting data that comes out of like a larger security team is from the incident response side because you get a level of detail and fidelity that's that's quite amazing um you know i was i remember being at google when the incident response team started building gur it's it's a really interesting thing but like incident response is expensive to spin up it, it's 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 mm. an endeavor it takes time it's disruptive and you know i always thought it was really interesting that when you look at what you get out of it. You say, hey, I find suspicious things. My mentality was that, you know, whenever you get an IOC 
from a report or, or an alert from your EDR, that's not the end. These are leads. But I guess, I guess the reason I keep coming back to this concept of it being, you know, a, a useful response platform is because, you know, previously incident response was very much a manual hands-on thing, people logging into various data stores to pull down stuff and grab it, you know, and, you know, you're pretty much using a whiteboard or Multigo at some point to keep notes and try to correlate stuff. And it gets, it gets just gnarly, right? Yep. Whereas some of these technologies now are emerging and, you know, NDR is just a, such a classic example of it, which is why I keep coming back to it. You know, stuff like NDR, stuff like this, where a lot of that work, a lot of the data that you're going to need is just already there, right? Which mm -hmm. makes your, you know, the, the hard part of your incident response um, very easy. You know, you can narrow your focus quickly. So just, you just wind up doing a lot less legwork. Yep. If you come in knowing what you're looking for, find similarities based on that, or even look at the machines that are impacted. And you can ask yourself, what do these machines have that's odd on it? Mm. Um, trying to think of just how, just trying to get that idea of like, what's unique about this device versus the others? That's a hard question to answer for, for even big sophisticated teams. And when you look at something like us, that's a sort. That's show me all the things on the machine, show me what's rare. Yeah, uh, the most un, most rare first, and you're done. Like yeah, I mean, we've mentioned that really a few times in these interviews, which is you can even do that for the whole enterprise. Which is you yeah. know, if you've got nothing to do that day, get Stairwell to show you the fifty rarest binaries in your organization, and you'll have something to do. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're looking, you know, I'm still, I remember working uh, in high school, working in restaurants and classic restaurant line. But you know, you always have the restaurant manager would say something like, "If you have time to lean, you have time to clean." there's always something interesting to look at because here's the stuff that's rare. Here's the stuff that's abnormal. Here's the stuff that only you have. Um, mm. That's where you kind of start having a lot of fun with it. It's funny because I just did a demo uh, the other day. We recorded a demo, uh, myself and HD Moore, looking at Run Zero. And the thing that kept coming into my mind when I was watching his demo is that sort of God mode concept, right? Which is the visibility they get into what devices are where uh, is insane. And also they're doing cool stuff like, you know, you can link it up with Google Workspace and just enter a query into Rumble that says, you know, show me every, uh, you know, show me every Google account that doesn't have MFA enabled, which you can do if you can figure out the Google Workspace interface and generate the report right? Like you can do that already, but being able to just go to Rumble and say, show me this, right? And, and yep. bang, it shows you that and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, all of these tools are sort of falling into that, that bucket of like, tell me things that are, are important. You know, you can query them and get good info back that previously would have been very difficult to um, establish. I just think this is a trend and, and, and a good one. I mean, I think, I think it's good, right? Like one of the things that I think always, I guess, bugged me is that, you know, if I go back like 10 years even, security was always performed by uh, black box vendors that just basically, they don't explain how it worked. You know, if you think about just legacy antivirus, this is bad because, I don't know, uh, AV vendor blank said it was bad. That's it. Mm. Like, there's no data. Well, remember it, the market leading uh, the market leading IPS back in the day came from ISS Internet Security Systems later sold to IBM, and they would give you a signature match on network data that, like, no PCAP, no real understanding of like why the signature fired. Just we blocked this packet. I uh, can't really tell you why. I mean, we can tell yeah. you why we think, but it's probably not that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I mean, like, I that's a, that's what it was. It was just like 
this was this was to me it was always like you know how do you actually improve that like you have to put 100 percent of your trust in some vendor and i think what we've seen over the over the last say 10 years even is a opening up of the data for a lot of these things so when you start looking at like you know when virus total like i mean like i i give props to the virus total guys right like they kind of built an ecosystem on like showing the data this is what vendors say this is the features of the file this is what you have there i think you know bernardo and emiliano and julio and all the guys over there in malaga did a fantastic job of demystifying that and then that gave that helped to give birth to the like threat intelligence, threat hunting world where people were sharing IOCs and byte strings of files and sort of this, that kind of like pulled that out of the claws of the AV labs as they used to be called and, and made that something that was available to, you know, non-vendor security companies to use. And like now when you sit back and you look at it, like, you know, people wouldn't use EDR if it did not show them the behaviors of what was happening. The fact that like yeah. the data is not just locked away in a vault, but like it's made available to people. Um, we're just trying to take that a step further where it's not just saying these are artifacts about the files or these are features extracted from it, but like not only can we do that and we do do it, but here's our analysis of it. Here's other analysis of it. And uh, the data is preserved that if you want to go over and question that or, or redo it yourself, you're not working off of artifacts or metadata of the thing. You actually have the original yeah. thing itself. This has turned into a pretty f fun philosophical conversation about trends in InfoSec products, right? Because now when I think about it, like if you are sitting there at a, at a you know, mid to large enterprise, you have access to NDR, you have access to Rumble, and you have access to Stairwell man, you can answer a lot of questions that without those things are very difficult to answer. Yes. I think that's the most exciting part in the world is like we have, yeah. we have all of the, 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 the pieces now, I think to actually yeah. start provide, like start providing the context and visibility we've always wanted. Like, yeah, yeah. We've, we've always just had snippets of the, you know, the airplane black box recording. All right. And yeah. I think now we're at the point where we actually like, no, we can actually do stuff with this now. All right, Mike Wyasek, thank you so much for joining us uh, for that conversation. Uh, very interesting stuff, my friend. And uh, we'll be talking to you again throughout the year. Cheers. Cheers. That was Mike Wyasek from Stairwell there. Big thanks to him for that. And big thanks to Stairwell for being this week's sponsor. And that is actually it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with more security news and analysis. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.